because we are doing the responsible thing and practicing social distancing, these podcasts are being recorded remotely. The Reverend Canon Dr. Martin Brokenleg is a member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. He is an author, professor, counselor, and renowned speaker. Here is his podcast called Heart Learning. Omitakiepi ampetikile chantewa shtea na pechius apelo. Wambliwa ikita emachia palana shichanghula kota miyeelo. Relatives and kinsfolk with a good heart, I shake your hand. And I want to express my gratitude for being invited to be a part of this program, which has in its title, Sacred Teachings, Path to the Stronghold. And I was thinking about the stronghold because I know where it is. Uh, in Western South Dakota, uh, essentially straight south of Brandon, Manitoba, uh, there is a low range of clay sediment hills that have been eroded to look like a moonscape. And only Lakota people are familiar with all the passageways through that. And so in the late 1800s, when the Lakota nation, the Sioux nation, when the Lakota nation was uh, in armed conflict with the US uh, cavalry forces, our people used to go into the badlands to hide. And that's why that place is called the stronghold. Uh, only Lakota people knew where it was, and it was very heavily fortified, so they had an advantage, uh, regardless of what kinds of enemies were coming toward them. Well, given the um, the virus of, and, and other threats of our time, uh, I can see why the title of Path to the Stronghold was chosen. My own grandfather, who I remember from my childhood, was 99 at the time of his death. Uh, in the late 1890s, he took his sisters to the stronghold, and they hid there because they knew that they could be safe there, they were protected, uh, they had been secure there before. So in that context, uh, this podcast wants to consider what it is that Indigenous communities might have to offer uh, during these times with the various threats and dangers that are around us. And I thought I would begin with a quote that I remember from a professor, Paula Gunn Allen, who was professor of creative writing at the University of California in Berkeley, California. Uh, she said some years ago, the longer European peoples remain here, she meant in North America, the longer they remain here, the more indigenous they will become, she says. Those weren't exactly her words. Her words were the longer they remain here, the more Indian they will become. But in the language of our time, we would say the more indigenous they would become. And of course, I think what she was referring to was the effect that the earth and the land, that this landscape has on us, because it is enormously powerful and enormously shaping. And for us who come from indigenous communities, uh, we have been here longer than anyone imagined, longer than science, longer than anthropology, longer than archaeology has been able to document. We have been here apparently from time immemorial as our legends and stories and elders have always said, we have been here longer, uh, way before there was a land bridge, way before there was crossing of the Bering Sea. Um, our people have been here for a much longer period of time. And so we have been enormously shaped by Turtle Island, um, one of the ter common terms used to describe, to describe uh, North America. 
And in that long period of time, thousands and thousands of years, perhaps a hundred thousand years, perhaps even longer, in all that period of time, we have been through many hardships uh, of various kinds. Uh, we have survived. We have figured out how it is that we survive. And of course, we have been through catastrophes before. We have been through plagues before. All of the diseases and plagues that reduced our population from probably 25 million, around 1,500, down to a mere, some say as, as few as 400,000 of us were left in 1890. And 90% of those deaths were caused by diseases which were new to us, diseases that had come from, from uh, Europe uh, to North America. And of course, that's the case with this virus. It comes from someplace else but it affects all of us who are here uh, in North America. So what we are saying is that uh, indigenous populations have been through many things before. Uh, we are the people who have survived catastrophe, total destruction of everything that we knew. Our religious systems eradicated and destroyed and declared illegal. Uh, we have seen our food supply, in the case of my people, the bison, uh, from numbers plummeting from something like 60 million in the mid-1800s to probably about four or 500 left uh, in the late 1880s, and we have survived. The deaths of all of, that, of, all of those bison was deliberate. That is to say, when the uh, European governments that moved here, the, it later became the U.S. and Canada, when they could not conquer us militarily, they um, decided to go after our food supply. And so the destruction of the bison was deliberate. And we have survived. We have, we have survived smallpox. We have survived typhoid. We have survived typhus. We, we have survived measles. I read an account of a group of traders bringing European goods who left St. Louis. They paddled up the Missouri River in the uh, early 1880s. Somewhere around what's now Sioux City, uh, Iowa, one of the crewmen was found to have measles on this flat bottom boat. They could have turned around and gone back to St. Louis, but they decided not to. They also decided not to fumigate the trade items which they were carrying with them, and so they proceeded up the Missouri River across what is now South Dakota, western North Dakota, and into what's eastern Montana. It was September by the time they got that far, and of course they had traded for furs and mostly for furs, for the uh, Western goods that they were carrying with them. So they decided to turn around under threat of early winter. They decided to turn around and head back towards St. Louis, going back downriver. And their records, their, their journals say that from the time they left eastern Montana until they got south of what's now Omaha, Nebraska, they did not find a single indigenous person alive. Everyone had died because of the small pot, the, the uh, measles that uh, they were carrying on board. And, and so indigenous communities have survived catastrophe. We have survived um, plagues of all kinds. We have survived social and cultural destruction of various kinds, and we're still here. We have survived through all of that. We have even survived residential schools. And all of those attempts which uh, the Canadian government decided at one time were liabilities and that our identities and our languages and our 
our sense of self had to be destroyed. We survived all of that, and we're still here. We still know who we are. We are still active communities. Of course, we're wounded and limping. Who wouldn't be after that kind of a history? I was, uh, I've been adopted among the Haida, and I'm proud to carry the Haida name Skilgants. And uh, when I have visited Haida family at uh, Haida Gwaii, uh, we were talking about the flu epidemics, the three flu epidemics that went through the Haida in the late 1800s and early 1900s, when 98% of their people died from those flu epidemics. And yet the Haida were here. Their artistic tradition is vibrant. Their spirituality and their communities are vibrant today. They have survived. Of course, they're wounded. Of course, they've been traumatized. That's what plague and destruction does. But indigenous people are here. And so it, it, it is probably right that other people feeling danger and threat should look to say, now, how is it exactly that they survived? And I would say we have survived because we value what we know in our hearts. In Western education and Western culture, knowledge of the head is important. And it is important. You have to know, to live well in Canadian society, you have to know something about economics and law and sociology and psychology and, I don't know, urban planning and all kinds of things. You have to have a big knowledge base when you live in a complex society and culture like Canada. But we tend to think of this primarily as learning in the head. Whereas indigenous communities have always valued learning in the heart as the most important. We, we don't downplay knowledge. It is important. You have to have it. But heart learning works in different kinds of ways. Essentially, we can use language and words to educate a person's mind. Lecture. I was a university professor for most of my life, and I know how to lecture. I've done it, I've done it for a long time. And... Uh, Lectures are very good for conveying information in a certain kind of, kind of a way. And all I have to do to convey that learning is simply to put it into words. But heart learning doesn't work the same way. Heart learning requires experiences. You have to have an experience that gives you the realization of some important learning that stays in the heart. And of course, this, this heart learning then creates a vibrant spirituality. Spirituality does not exist by head learning. Spirituality exists by heart learning. And it is that heart learning which has always been held in very high esteem by indigenous communities. So there are certain life experiences which a person has. In Lakota culture, for example, we have an ear piercing ceremony. Um, we, we do it usually at a Sundance. Uh, a, a toddler is usually taken to their first Sundance when they're a year or two years old. When adults are making their offerings, the child's ears are pierced. And our Lakota teaching says this will do two things. Number one, it will mark the child as a Lakota, because having both ears pierced is a sign of Lakota identity. Secondly, the teaching says it will open the child's ears to spiritual learning. Uh, there, there is no other way to to have that, that mark of identification, there is no other way to have your ears open to spiritual learnings outside of that experience of having those ears, ears pierced. You can't get it by talking about it. You have to have the experience of it. So also with coming of age, end of life, um, 
we have annual ceremonies. We have once in a lifetime ceremonies. We have uh, a ceremony for each moon. We have a ceremony for each each uh, winter, as we say. So, for example, when we first hear the thunders in the spring, there's a, there's a ceremony that we have to mark that occasion, uh, the, the awakening of the of, of the thunders. Well. It's only by going through those experiences that, it, that your heart is going to have the right character of your people. So in a way, we can talk about some of the wisdoms and teachings of indigenous communities, but without the living experience, it becomes very difficult to actually have the realization. This is why protocol is always such a big deal for uh, indigenous people. There's a, there's a protocol for how we gather. There's a protocol for how to wake up in the morning. There's a protocol for how fires are tended. There's a protocol for eating salmon among my Haida relatives. Uh, there's a protocol for almost everything because a protocol is a miniature experience. For example, there's a Lakota protocol for waking up in the morning. There's certain things we're to say to ourselves before we even open our eyes. And then when we sit up and stand up, there, there are things that we say, resolutions that we make. Then there's a certain action when we stand, we turn sunwise, and we say they speak to each of the directions, and then we start the day. Well, I've been observing that protocol for more than 70 years, and I'm starting to get a Lakota heart. But that's what a protocol does. If you don't practice the protocols of your people, you cannot have the heart of your people. And the, the reason I say this over and over again is because for indigenous communities, it's what we know in our heart that helps us survive. For example, we know the importance of bravery. In Lakota teachings, we consider bravery one of the most, uh, one of the four major virtues uh, that any person can carry bravery. Doesn't mean you aren't afraid. Doesn't mean you don't feel discouraged. But it means in the face of all that, your resolution to do your best, your resolution to, to carry yourself well, your, your resolution to, to live your life with the appropriate dignity of yourself and your people has to hold, hold firm because regardless of what happens to you, that resolution, that, that heart resolve, that thing that you know in your heart, that bravery that you carry within you is going to get you through whatever the circumstance is. That comes along. So, so out of this lived experience, I would say that um, it's it's hard to for a person who hasn't had similar experiences to perceive the, the importance, the important outcome, the important heart learning that occurs. But even just knowing that, I think a person can make a resolution to try to acquire that. If bravery is important. If your spirituality is important, when you wake up in the morning, you should set your resolution for that day. Set your focus, your intention, your heart uh, in that spiritual direction for that day. Pause during the day to look back at your intention, to say, am I carrying this right? Am I doing this the best way that I can? Uh, is there something else I should be doing that's going to give me the, the resolution that I had hoped for, the character uh, of my entire day? And then we want to, uh, at the end of the day, look back and say, um, is this in fact what happened? Did I, did, did I do everything that I said I was going to do? Should I have done better? 
I didn't know this because I don't read Arabic, but apparently if you go to libraries in the Middle East, you will find in, in Arabic libraries rooms that are full of journals of, um, of, of local people who, who have formally written down in their journal uh, a spiritual evaluation of their day. And then these journals are given to the local library. So apparently you can find stacks and stacks of journals in Middle Eastern libraries, all in Arabic, local people's summaries of their spiritual practice during that particular day. We don't have anything like that uh, in Canada. It's too bad. It would be nice to know how other people are doing with their own spiritual resolution. So I would say, uh, given our times, given the trials and the dangers that are around us, um, having valuing heart learning, figuring out how to set an intention, a spiritual intention, and how to evaluate and nurture it throughout the day is probably the best kind of a stronghold that a person can have. Uh, that way, regardless of whatever comes along, uh, that inner strength is going to be is going to be there. As we continue this podcast series, what I wanted to point out today was how important it is to value what we know in our hearts. It's a different kind of learning from what we know in our heads. It's fostered by experiences, spiritual experiences, experiences that strengthen our heart, that focus our soul, that give us direction. In indigenous communities, we have protocols that do that we can build those protocols for ourselves today in our own time so that we can face whatever the circumstances of our day and of our life might be with courage with dignity and with gratitude and compassion because we live in a wonderful world sacred teachings path to the stronghold is now streaming on spotify podbean and Mimeo. See you next time.